Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Oliver here. This week, we interviewed Joe Kraus, president of Lime. I am so excited for this interview. It's been a long time coming. As you probably know, Lime are the largest players in the shared micromobility space globally. And it was awesome to finally get Joe on the podcast to talk about all nature of things, their history and the current plans, the state of the industry, regulation and the challenge of climate change and where micromobility can assist, among other things. The overwhelming thing that came out of this for me was that Joe is just an awesome dude. And in a world of hype, he is a very level headed voice and also a great executor. With the more recent news that Lime are getting out of Latin America and shuttering some of the lower performing markets in the US, you can hear in this interview how and why Joe is thinking about building Lime to be around for the long term. He will also be speaking at the upcoming Micromobility America Summit, which we're hosting in April 22nd, 23rd in Richmond in the Bay Area. It'll be an amazing event. I'll be emceeing, Horace, my co-host, will be keynoting, and we'll have folks from all over the world there speaking about the best new ideas in the industry. We're expecting over a thousand people and it's going to be awesome. Check out micromobility.io to get yourself some tickets. Before we dig in, I also want to thank this week's sponsor for the show, Twilio. Shared micromobility, as we're about to hear, is a deceptively hard business. Keep losing your connections to these vehicles and soon you will be out of business. And that's where Twilio comes in. It's a global IoT connectivity platform helping companies like Lime, Skip, Spin and Beam to keep their vehicles connected and cost effectively scale faster, deploy further and optimize their supply chain. Twilio is also the global leader for SMS and phone verification APIs to reduce fraud and improve compliance. Are you looking for the right global connectivity partner to scale with? If so, Twilio is offering free SIMs and test credit to micromobility podcast listeners. Click the link in the podcast description for more. And with that, here's Joe. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Joe Krauss. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm wonderful, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I wish the audience could see this because I'm looking at you on a video screen and you're wearing a Star Wars Christmas themed uh, suit and tie, which I've never seen. <laughs> it looks amazing. The internet is an amazing place, all for $99, full kit and caboodle. I wouldn't get anywhere near an open flame. The polyester is very flammable. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually going to get a photo of you and put it up for the blog post for the episode. But I'm incredibly excited for this episode. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Obviously, we had you in Berlin uh, come and talk. Uh, Lime is the biggest player in this shared micromobility space globally. Um, and as we've watched you, I think there's been a lot of questions that have come up. Um, so I'm very excited to finally have a chance to, to interview you. I'm going to assume that most of the audience know who you are. I'm going to assume most of the audience um, understand where you're coming from and where you're playing. Um, but I thought maybe what we could do is just do a really short history of where you've come from and where you've got to um, and your position in the global market so that those coming to this who might be a little bit green um, can get a sense of where you're at. Great. Um, so company was started obviously by two founders, Brad Bao and Toby Sun. And they were together working at a venture capital firm. And they were very interested in what was going on in Chinese bike share. Both are from uh, China originally. 
and obviously very, very familiar with both Chinese business models and where China's leading in, in certain cases, especially in the wave of uh, bike share in 2016, really. Um, they looked at that and thought a lot about, well, how would that model apply to the United States? What are the key differences? And for six months or so, they had actually looked to fund a company in that space, um, but unhappy with kind of any of the choices that they uh, found in order to fund, they decided we're just going to leave the venture capital world and start this directly. And then Lime was born. Uh, as I think many people know, Lime was originally a bike share company, uh, starting with pedal bikes. Um, and really was, um, wasn't really until the beginning of 2018 that the business shifted uh, primarily to scooters. Um, and really from that point forward, from 2018, the primary modality that we offer in micromobility is scooters. Uh, we've done over 100 million rides, uh, 30 countries, 120 markets, um, and uh, definitely on a two-to-one basis over anybody else, uh, even our largest competitor, we're kind of two-to-one larger. So really the leader in the space in bringing micromobility to the world. Amazing. And your involvement, uh, you, you came through, you were at Google Ventures, right? If that's, if my memory serves me right. Yeah, that's right. So my, my background is 25 years in Silicon Valley. I started two companies, one in the early 90s that I took public and a second uh, in the early 2000s that I sold to Google. That's how I ended up there. And then um, in the mid to late 2000s with several others at Google, got Google Ventures off the ground. Uh, and we were investing a billion dollars a year in technology startups all around the world. I was there for a decade and I was really focused on one of my practice areas was in transportation. And Lime was my second to last investment uh, made in May of 2018. And when I saw what was happening in several ways, one is just the growth of Lime, the growth of the, this mode. The second is, I love that Peter Thiel quote, I'm gonna get it not quite right, but essentially, you know, we asked for flying cars and we got 140 characters. This idea that yeah. I had for many, many, many years of my career worked on people's digital lives, um, but I love the tangibility of transportation because it affects people's physical lives. And I think, um, I think there's an opportunity to make a huge impact in making people's daily lives better in a different way than technology usually plays. Um, and when I saw kind of the mega trends that were going on, both with climate change and the need to work on the most important problem that we face, which is the climate crisis, the impact of urbanization, the impact that of the kind of unbundling of the car trip, as, as you all talk about a lot, um, it just seemed that those megatrends were very clear that I wanted to jump back in with both feet and get back involved operationally. And so I went from a board member of Lime in uh, like June of 2018 to um, a full-time role in November of 18. Thanks for that background. That's really useful. Um, and as you say, you're about, what, 50% of the global trips that are done in the micromobility space, the shared micromobility space. Would that be accurate? I think so. And I'm really curious because in, in some ways you guys are on the front line seeing how this, this industry evolves, how you think this market is going to shake out in the sort of short to medium term. Are we through this rapid, kind of crazy hyper growth that you saw in the very early years and we're now settling into building more mature businesses? What do you think that they're still a heap more growth um, in, in the kind of in the shared micromobility model as we're seeing it today? I think, there's, I think there's a couple of things happening. Let me try to organize my thoughts. On the one hand, if we just look at sheer demand, um, I actually do not see any slowdown of the demand for micromobility in urban environments. Uh, I think more and, you know, I think it takes a while for people to get used to a new behavior. Um, you know, the thing that Uber taught us is we could 
have access to, a, at sufficient liquidity, access to a car was equivalent to or better than ownership. And I think that people are getting used to this idea of, well, maybe sometimes a car is not the best way to get around within a city. And I think the more familiarity people have with alternatives in micromobility, be it scooters or uh, e-bikes, for example, or other form factors, which I think are going to be explored over the next couple of years, I think you're going to continue to see a shift in demand for short trips onto micromobility. And I don't think that shows any signs of slowing down, in my opinion. The second thing I think about is the way that cities are approaching micromobility has changed, even in the scope of the last year. I would say at the beginning of 2019, cities had a very much a like, please don't show up here. Um, we don't want you here. Uh, and now I would say cities are more like, how do we have you here successfully? And I think that is a very different kind of tone and tenor of the conversations we see globally. The third thing I would say is the vast majority of the huge markets in the world where I think micromobility is especially good for aren't open. London's not open, New York's not open, Boston's not open, Philadelphia's not open, Tokyo's not open, Sydney's not open. I think those are all coming. So as it relates to your question, which is growth, I actually think there's a tremendous amount of growth left in the business. I think the good news is that most municipalities have regulated the business in a way that allows for more growth of fleet in cities because there's this mechanism called dynamic capping, which is really based on like utilization. So the more people use, the more fleets can grow. And I think that's actually a pretty good mechanism for mapping the supply and demand curve. Cause I think what cities have historically been concerned about is not repeating a, you know, bikes from the sky falling from the sky situation like we saw in China in 2016. Um, so again, my overall view on the question is I actually think the dynamics are set up for quite a continued healthy growth. That is a combination of consumer behavior changes as they get used to this modality. Um, the fact that many important cities still aren't open that are greenfield and the dynamic cap situation that existing cities put in to kind of grow fleet, grow supply as demand grows as well. Totally. I can see all of those things. I, uh, the one part that I think I've been thinking a lot about as I talk to people in the industry is whether or not this calcifies in the same way, like the taxi quota system calcified um, in a lot of, in a lot of cities, you know, you end up with, you know, we're moving towards permits, et cetera. Um, and, and I wonder a little bit whether or not we're gonna end up in a situation where businesses who are in this model end up being, you know, in some ways almost like a bus contract or a train contract um, would be, you know, op awarded by a transit agency to an operator and run for five years or so, which is, you know, I think it would be both highly purposeful in the sense that it provides um, utility to, to citizens, but it would also cap its growth quite effectively. Um, do you think that's where the market's going? Um. So first, personally speaking, I don't think the business is going down the path of taxis or train and bus contracts. And the primary reason I think that is that I don't think anybody, be it in private industry or in government, looks at the taxi model and say, like, we'd love to replicate that. So I think nobody wants that as an outcome. Um, yeah. The second thing is I think there's recognition that there's going to be electrification of the last mile. And the ways cities have historically approached this is with big infrastructure, electric buses, light rail. And the reality is that stuff takes dozens of years 
and tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I think the initial reaction to scooters on the street was like, oh my God, what's happening? I don't have any control over this. But I think upon further reflection, this idea of like, well, wait a second, this is a trend I want. It actually benefits, we're very aligned with the city's goals, which are fewer cars, less congestion, more electrification, less pollution, and they don't have to pay for anything. Like it happens, it happens without them having to invest a dime. Um, and so I actually think there's alignment. There's obviously at any given point in time, maybe disagreement about like, how much demand is there really? Obviously companies think there's a lot more demand in many cities and cities are initially willing to give supply. That's the whole point of dynamic caps is like, you don't have, you don't have somebody at the city having to decide that. You have a market mechanism by which supply meets demand. And so that's the important piece. So in short, no, I don't think this is going the way of the taxi industry because I don't think anybody wants it to. We as operators definitely don't want it that way. And cities don't look at taxis as like, hey, let's go back. And if we could replicate any model, taxis and medallions are really the winner. Yes, I guess in some ways why I'm also thinking like this is that I can see the, the conversations that I'm coming up against uh, in the agencies that I'm working with in New Zealand is they're saying, yeah, like we completely want this. We actually, you know, there's potential for like first last mile connections and we will be open to subsidizing them. If you're going to subsidize, then you end up with those kind of contracts that can be quite inflexible. And I think that's potentially where the calcification might come from as well. It might be. I think subsidies are required when you don't have sufficient consumer demand. And so you, the only way for a service provider to survive is a combination of subsidies and the, the sum of subsidies plus consumer demand. Scooters have not had a demand problem in general from customers because they solve a problem that cities weren't solving, be it last mile connection from a transit endpoint um, be it a way to move between two points faster than in a car. Um, so I think that's a good point about that's historically the way it's been. But if we look at the root cause of why it's been that way, I think part of it is you have massive uh, capital infrastructure that you need to put in for some of those systems that are getting subsidized. And the second piece is there's been a, you know, less demand. Yeah, those are very good points. Absolutely. Um, following on from that, I guess in some ways wanting to continue that discussion around the structure, permitting, etc. Is, is that in some ways, right, when you look at it, your licensed operator is very binary, right? So I, I can use the example of Auckland, New Zealand, and I, and I use that because I know that quite well. But the context here is that the council has just awarded a new set of contracts for six months uh, in December. And unfortunately, Lime, who had who until now had been, you guys had been the largest operators um, in, in Auckland, you didn't get renewed for, for the next six months. And the reason that they cited was that there had been a, you know, a couple of different things, but one, one of them had been a wheel locking issue that had come up last year and people had fallen off scooters and had become injured about something that they didn't feel that Lime had dealt with appropriately. But look, you're a global player, you're running a global team, um, you have all these interdependencies and intricacies, but at the same time, you're deeply, deeply, deeply um, local in the way that you operate. Um, you have to be responsive to uh, regulators, etc. Um, how does this impact the structure that you have for your operations and policy teams to be responsive and have them have sufficient agency, but also be able to run a global business? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is a good observation about the, the nature of the business. So our supply chain is global. We run the same scooter for the most part all over the world. Uh, the technology and tools that every local operations person uses are the same all around the world. Uh, the 
you know, the algorithms we use for deployment are the same all around the world. They're adaptive to local conditions. So on the one hand, you have global standardization. And as you said, on the other hand, you have very local issues that are often, um, they can be community related or government related. Um, and so that is a challenge in the business for sure. Uh, it basically is what, what I would say ha is the way we structure it is we basically have a pretty sizable government affairs team because many of these issues on the local basis are often political. Um, and so the way we've structured is we invest heavily in technology to keep the technology team, uh, the technology tools that every local market uses the same. That's a investment we get a lot of leverage on. Um, but we recognize that truthfully in the business, we have to invest in uh, government affairs people that can handle a local Auckland issue. Uh, my own view on Auckland, broadly speaking, and in markets in general is, I think right now the market's very young. And so cities, in my opinion, are not yet properly valuing the longevity and the bumps and bruises and the learning of large-scale organizations. So when I look at the Auckland permit process very specifically, um, I strongly suspect what they're going to find is that smaller operators who promise the moon won't deliver. And that's okay. I don't mind a situation where for six months we're out of the market. I don't want to be out of the market, obviously. I'd love to be operating there. But my hope is, you know, the way I put it this way, I think in life there's lessons that can be taught and there's lessons that can be learned. And <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't want markets to have to learn, cities to have to learn the hard way that going with operators who promise the moon, don't deliver, might have safety issues, but don't have the scale to handle them, uh, don't own their own scooter engineering, like that, that essentially I hope and believe that the market, the cities in particular, will start valuing global operational scale and reliability uh, more than at least what I see they're doing now. And I'd hope that that lesson could be teachable. In the case of Auckland, I suspect it will be learned, not taught. Yes. Uh, um, well, look, speaking of that, and I think, you know, one of the things that both uh, Horace and I have both been really noticing is that there is a clear gap missing for an industry association. Um, you know, because as you say, lobbying, you know, you can you can go out and as Lime, you're going to hire specific government affairs people um, and they're going to lobby specifically for Lime. But I think there's a sort of wider gap there for, for sort of agency and research um, that needs that I can see that exists and in part I think we're trying to fill at micromobility industries and the work that we're doing but in some ways you know it needs to be like an AAA the automobile association equivalent um, to get out and just say look when you're thinking about doing district plans you should be thinking about micromobility and integrating it or when you're thinking of your contracts um, think about the global players and the lessons that they've learned and the fact that they might be able to deliver these operational efficiencies that local players might not be able to I'm curious about why you think that hasn't emerged and where you think we might get to in the industry in, in say, the next 12 months or two years. Um, is it still kind of too early for that or to have it kind of bolt on or, or do you think we're going um, to, we'll see it develop? Well, one reason that I think it hasn't yet, although I think that there are some, uh, certainly some attempts on policy, some attempts on safety that we're, we're trying to lead in, in both cases. But I think the first reason is it's young as an industry, like, hard to believe, but scooters really haven't been on the ground more than two years at any kind of scale. And that just means that 
most companies focus first and foremost on um, trying to figure out their own business. So if you just think about it in kind of a Maslow's hierarchy, if you're starting a company in this space, the first thing you're focused on is like, okay, well, I have to raise money. And then I have to get my supply chain so that I can put scooters on the ground. And then I have to be able to run operations successfully. And then I have to figure out what should I charge for these things? And how do I, on operations, not lose scooters in the market? And then how do I have good unit economics? And so like, it's, and then how do I go, how do I expand the number of markets that I'm in? So that it basically, I think in the first two years, the primary focus of all the operators has been on running their business and figuring out the industry, like how to, how to serve all of this demand in a way that is profitable um, and is a way that's scalable. And so collective actions always are taking longer, number one. They're more difficult because of counterparties. And so you're going to work first just out of pragmatism on the problems that you can control. And so I think the, the fact that the industry is two years old, less than two years old, and the fact that there's tremendous pressure on all these companies to figure out their own operations, financing, supply chain, et cetera, means that we're now starting to get to, okay, now the next order issues for how we grow the whole pie collectively is coming to the forefront. And I think people are recognizing that instead of simply scratching out between like if I look in the U.S., my, my recollection is there's about 300 million trips um, a day in the U.S. that are in the target in the top, I think, three or 400 cities in the U.S. So it's a, it's a, like, to serve three or 400 cities in the U.S. is a pretty big number. But if we just kind of looked at TAM as 300 million trips, which I believe is something like uh, greater than a half mile of walking, less than a mile and a half of driving something on that order, and you assumed a utilization of four trips per vehicle per day, you'd need 75 million scooters to serve 100% of demand. And then if you even put that by, cut that by 90%, so you're only serving 10% of the demand, that's seven and a half million scooters. But my estimate of the total number of permits in the United States is probably on the order across all operators of maybe 300,000. And so like you're just this tiny fraction of the market is actually addressed. And so people are, operators are starting to realize that the need for collective action to help cities think more broadly is, is now coming to the fore as opposed to, well, we're going to fight, we're going to scratch and fight over those 300,000 scooters. Let's grow the whole market. And I think it's, I would strongly predict that a lot of that collective work is going to start in 2020 in a more meaningful way, both on kind of safety and standards, and I think yeah. also on um, advocacy. Excellent. Well, we're going to get into that, into the, the call to action uh, that you put out in Berlin. But I'm uh, really curious about how you think what Lime's role is in that, uh, you know, given that you're 50% of the, of the global market and rides in this space. Um, I think we need to be one of the groups that's kind of bringing everybody together. I think that we were an important part of helping to get the micromobility coalition uh, going. And I think that there's an opportunity to work um, again across the board with other operators on policy issues in particular, as it relates to planning. Um, the good, you know, the other thing that I think is worth talking about though, is that 
I think if you look forward, you know, I was, I was, um, I was in Paris about a month ago and I was looking at the like shared mopeds and really kind of looking at what do I think about shared, uh, electric mopeds in, um, in Paris in particular. And one of the things that was interesting to me is that shared mopeds in Paris don't save much time. Um, first, you have a lot of like issues regarding, hey, I have to, actually as a US citizen, I can't use European operators. Yeah, I know that was so unfortunate. It was the same for me. It was so frustrating. I wanna try this out and see how it works. Uh, but even for a local, you have to present your passport or a national ID card and a driver's license. You have two forms of identity. And then the second thing is you don't save a lot of time, at least in the Paris context, because streets are uh, narrow and so you're not allowed in the bike lane. And as a result, um, the value proposition of shared mopeds are low as it relates to time savings. Yeah, and you're stuck in the rest of the traffic. You're stuck in the rest of the traffic. And so what, it, what I think the interesting thing to think about is that over the next 20 years, like, if I had to, one of the things that I do as an exercise to myself is I think, would I bet half of what I own on a, on a trend in 20 years? And what trends would I be comfortable betting half of what I own over the next 20 years happening and which would I not? And one thing that I am absolutely uh, comfortable saying is in, the, in cities all around the world, I believe that we're going to, certainly as a fraction of the amount that we have today, we're gonna build far more bike lanes than we are gonna build new, new roads in those urban cores. There's no room for new roads. And so, anyway, this gets me back to this question of advocacy. I think one of the great parts of the mega trend over the next 20 years is there's gonna be a lot more infrastructure globally that's gonna float the whole sector, almost no matter what. I love that fact, and I think that gives tailwinds to both the whole sector as well as how do we help as a group cities plan those routes better, where should they put them, what are the concerns? Um, and I know that when I go all over the world and talk to planners, they're really curious about those questions. Yeah, I completely agree. There's, there's one thing that you actually said there is about, you know, and then in, uh, how we evolve in the next 20 years. And I'm really curious, you know, obviously you guys are raising at the moment. I feel like this is a tough time to be raising in some ways. There's a lot of capital that was committed to um, the space kind of pre the WeWork IPO, but I know that raises are getting a lot tougher, especially in the micromobility space. The hype is definitely uh, in the trough of disillusionment, I feel a little bit. Um, and, 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 and I guess in some ways, the reason I'm asking this question is we're, we're looking around um, at, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the explosion of the Chinese bike boom and Mobike and Ophone. How can you go to regulators these days um, and be able to say to them, you know, yep, we're still going to be around in 20 years. You can bank on us. Um, we're, we're not going to make all those mistakes um, and we're not going to burn through all of our cash uh, and, and uh, you know, not be around. Um, so how, how can you provide that? assuredness to regulators yeah what's the old joke the old joke is something like how do you spot the pioneers they're the ones face down dead in the dirt with arrows in their back so like the ofo and mobike example here i just think about specifically which is i think they pioneered something and then flamed out under a different set of conditions believing that the world would remain the same capital markets in particular would just remain forever the same so i actually think micromobility is growing up in a hurry um, on the economic side. You know, I, I have this view, which is 
really taken um, from Paul Hawken um, and that famous book he wrote in the mid-90s called The Ecology of Commerce, where this idea that like industry was the only force big enough to alter the physical world in a material way. And it's the only force big enough to continue to change it, hopefully for the good. And so my general view is that the way you make durable impact in the world is not by making a world-changing service. Scooters are a world-changing service. People love them, they save time, they have a smile on their face, like it has impacted millions of people's lives all over the world. Real impact though comes from making a world-changing service a world-changing business, because that's how you last. And one of the things that I think is interesting is soft capital markets are easy capital markets where capital is abundant. What do they say? Capital access drives capital dependence. This idea that like when the money's easy, you come to depend upon it. And that's why Ofo and Mobike essentially were dependent upon easy money. And when that ran out, they were gone. And I would actually argue that I don't know of a company and you can correct me here, but like in the next gen transportation sector, be it Uber or Lyft or any of the next gen car rental companies, many of the transportation companies that are doing marketplaces for freight, be it Convoy or Uber Freight or others, I don't know if we're profitable. And I, I'll make a prediction here and we should check in like a year. So I'm going to make a bold prediction. I'm taking that as a commitment for you to come on the podcast in a year for us to review this. I think we're going to be the first. I think we're going to be the yeah. first of all those companies to be profitable. And I think that's an incredible accomplishment. So I think that the whole industry, this I would argue in the transportation sector that's, that is either asset light in a case like Uber or asset heavy uh, in a case like Lime, the capital markets are driving and demanding that these businesses, these services turn into world-changing businesses. And I think that's healthy. It's not easy, but it's really healthy. And why is it healthy? Because it will drive durable change as opposed to these services stop when the money runs out. And so I think these businesses are growing up in a hurry. Lime is not that old, much, much younger than Uber, much, much younger than anybody in the ride hailing space. And at the same time, I think we're going to be the first to be profitable. This is, this is great. Uh, James Gross, who's the, the co-founder of Micromobility Conference, uh, had a bit of a rant with me yesterday about the fact that, you know, it was like, it's crazy. It's a preposterous thing that by 2020, uh, you know, Lime or, or anybody in this, in this space has to be profitable. You know, we still subsidize buses and trains and we have for 50 years, you know, and car transport and they get all these subsidies. It's an incredibly hard business. And in some ways, I think we're holding, uh, you know, the micromobility industry to different standards by saying it has to deliver on a profitability without any of its own subsidies in such a short time frame. And that happens though everywhere, just to be clear, like we have this debate with cities all the time when cities want micromobility to meet either standards or requirements that cars don't deliver. And in general, when you do that, it's essentially being pro-car. Um, and I think that's a hard frame for some, but I firmly believe it, which is that if you want something that's next generation, um, usually the approach is to, like when, we, when the United States or countries all over the world wanted solar, what did they do when solar was more expensive or wind was more expensive? They actually created a subsidized environment in which it could compete on an equal playing field so that the technology investment could catch up. Uh, 
like you just pointed out, we're in quite the opposite situation where the thing that's actually in many ways better for the climate and congestion goals of a city are actually taxed as opposed to subsidized. That said, that's the conditions we have. And my general view is that um, when you can compete in those environments and succeed, it basically means that those are the companies that will ultimately thrive. Yeah, totally. I mean, you'll win. And I think in some ways the best would be that we work out how to do that. And then uh, we have cars come and compete against the new rules that we've effectively set up. And then, you know, we're going to be fighting them on our turf, I think, um, if we can start charging them similar rates. Um, Hey, look, well, I'm aware we're running up against time, but you made a call to the industry when you're in Berlin that I wanted to kind of cover off. So um, you talked, there were kind of three points to it. First, you talked about, you know, that we will continue to improve safety by educating riders on best riding practices, etc. The second was that we would lead the global fight against climate change by improving our own lifespan and efficiency and helping uh, cities achieve their own carbon reduction goals. And the third was that they would partner, you would partner with cities um, to align on goals to serve uh, our cities equitably, knitting together a serious transportation option for all parts of the city. Um, You've mentioned climate a couple of times, and it's totally my thing. I really came to micromobility because I saw it as being um, how we can shift across uh, mode share. I mean, until now, we've really looked at it as being, uh, hey, we'll go and sell all these new vehicles, we'll sell electric cars, they will be the direct substitute for existing cars, and we'll be able to substitute our way across from fuel into the electric mobility. Um, And look, the math just doesn't really stack up like we're not going to be able to transition there quickly um so curious for you you know clearly the climate crisis has been something that's on your mind as well talk me through how you're thinking uh, you know how it will align with what you guys have been up to um, and how you guys think about it within the company and then how do you really think that you will be able to drive the impacts around climate change and changes in the transport system at line yeah so we've done a full life cycle analysis um of the business to understand um where are we good and where do we have room to go? And I think it's very clear that we're reasonable now. Like, as I think I mentioned, the North Carolina study showed we emit half the, half the carbon per mile of a car. But I mean, yes, that's good on some level, but we weigh like 180th of a car, so it sucks on some other level. Yeah. Um, and so understanding why that's the case, doing the life cycle analysis to understand like where specifically would you focus um, is really instructive. And the two main areas of focus that are actually the lowest hanging fruit. The first is you just, you got to make the scooters last longer. The North Carolina study, I think, assumed scooters lasting, if you, you might recall. Yeah, it was between six months and two years. So they ran a Monte Carlo analysis of those different life cycles. Getting scooters to last 18 plus months is really the, where we think we are with our most recent scooter. Um, and I think that certainly helps a bunch. The second is electrification of the operations of the business, specifically for the vans that are used for the repositioning of scooters by our own uh, employees. And if you electrify that component, then now we're, we're dealing with significantly better carbon emissions than public buses, public trains. Um, and I think that is a near-term target, like within the scope of a year that we can get to. Um, and then I think, you know, we continue to, to work it down from there. But my general view is focus on have the 
you probably, you of course know the story of interface carpet, but I thought they did a great job where they set a 20 year goal on what they were going to do. And then they kind of religiously benchmark themselves year after year. I think for us here, what's very clear to me is there's low hanging fruit that is like increasing the lifespan of the scooter is directly relatable to not only the benefits on the carbon uh, side, but benefits to the business itself. It's extremely aligned, which I love and electrification um, it turns out that in many cases, electric vans, while more expensive per month, have a lower fuel cost and amortized over the course of a year can be cost competitive. So it can be anything from cost neutral to slightly cost benefiting. And lastly, the other piece is that um, fuel, oddly speaking, fuel fraud is a small component, but a non-trivial component of what you see in operations all over the world where some of your employees are stealing fuel and they're not going to steal electricity in the same way. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that. Oh, I know. It's amazing. There's lots of details in these businesses that are always surprising one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think that the part that I'm still trying to get my head around um, is as we tell that story to government and regulators, because uh, in some ways you go and talk to national regulators, you know, and, and they're like, we have no idea how we're going to hit the carbon targets that, that our national governments are signing up to in Paris and through the international climate change agreements that we're, that we're making. Um, and so in some ways you come to them and you're saying, look, I've got the solution and it's not going to really cost you anything in many ways. Um, I don't think the research is robust enough yet. I'm curious if you guys are either working on that yourself specifically or you know of anybody who's doing that? You know, I, I think that whoever figures out how to tell that story well will benefit everybody in the industry and the globe broadly. I wouldn't say that I think we're necessarily better than anybody else. I think we have more data than anybody else because we have done a full uh, life cycle analysis, which is uh, helpful to actually pinpoint exactly where the various kind of pollutants are coming from in the system that gives you accuracy in, in our supply chain and operations on where to focus. Um, but I, I think that nobody's cracked the code on how to, can, how to make that a compelling argument to regulators. Because I think the short, it's the classic problem in climate, which is short-termism, the urgent and important thing is always um, the bigger priority than the important thing, but that's not immediately urgent. So Nobody's calling the mayor's office um, with a complaint about uh, carbon, but they are calling to complain about a scooter tipped over in the street. And so the, the urgency of the issue is what's always challenging in anything climate related. And I think this is no exception. Yeah, and I mean, I, th I think in some ways that's where Lime actually has a responsibility to be able to engage. And the one part that I, can, I still can't get my head around is why the global climate movement hasn't been more active in embracing micromobility to be able to um, help drive that. And I think in part that comes down to our ability to storytell in this space and to be able to kind of push that narrative forward. And I'm very keen to work out how we can help you do that um, uh, both at Lime and then also to work with the industry to be able to, to do that as well. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm aware you need to run. So one final question is look, so really around the plans for Lime. You know, you talked being able to want to reach the next billion riders. And yet when I look at it, almost all of your markets are predominantly in the OECD countries. And there's obviously a lot of scope for you being able to expand. We're very bullish on the developing world and micromobility here um, on the podcast. Um, I'm curious from your perspective about how you guys are thinking about that and what you need to um, what's needed for you to be able to take what you are able to do today and being able to service all of the global markets um, like that? Um, so we definitely think micromobility is applicable to any city. I think it's truthfully a bit hard in suburban environments because I think it does better in density. It's especially symbiotic with public transit. 
but I think that can mean anywhere around the globe. And it's certainly important also in areas where there's transit deserts, which is a little less applicable in Europe and a little more applicable in the United States, where just there's really a lack of kind of public infrastructure. One of the things that I think about is we're a company very committed to sustainability, but one of the things that I think isn't appreciated is how much um, accessibility is tied into the sustainability mission. And because sustainability is often viewed as simply an environmental argument, but in my view, it's tied up in an economic one as well. Access to economic opportunity Transportation is like a key element in access to opportunity. If you can't get to your job, mm -hmm. you can't get to it affordably, you are lowering access to economic opportunity, which makes your city less sustainable. So I just have this tie, at least personally, from a mission perspective, between sustainability and accessibility. And you know, one of the things that I'm proud of is programs like Lime Access, which basically make Lyme much more affordable for people of low incomes. So in the United States, approximately one in every three Lyme riders reports an annual income of less than $50,000. And I think that kind of access and programs like Lyme Access, which make scooter riding very affordable, is an important part of sustainability and something that I think we as a company are really committed to is this tie between access access to transportation and sustainability. With Lime Access, is that, is that part funded or do you guys cover the costs of those discounts for the people that are in the program? Lime funded entirely. Yeah, I absolutely hear you. Um, I mean, having seen the numbers on these low uh, discounted programs, um, uh, they've seen incredibly low levels of opt-in um, in terms of the number of people who actually sign up and go through the process to be able to qualify for them. Um, but I agree with you. I think there's a whole discussion to be had around accessibility and the use of shared micromobility um, and being able to help satisfy that. In terms of developing countries, um, are we going to see you launch in India or Africa any anytime soon? Or And actually... If you are, uh, what are the things that need to have change in the way that your business operates for you to be able to do that? So um, we generally don't talk about where we're going to launch in the future for a competitive reason. But I would say just generally speaking, areas with worse infrastructure are just generally more challenged. Um, also, there's regulatory issues in, in several of the countries that you mentioned. Like there's this weird thing where, you know, we've passed multiple bills help to get past multiple bills across the world that are about like making scooters actually legal. Um, Cause there's this old issue as you probably know that in many countries, scooters are actually classified as a car, um, which puts them under a whole different regulatory regime. But um, one, we can't, I can't comment specifically on where we're going to launch, but two is I think from a business perspective and being a sustainable business that's durable, it is harder to launch in places where infrastructure is worse. It just is. Yeah. yeah, and the incomes are lower and all that sort of stuff. Now, yeah. the, 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 thing, the thing you can solve for there is you have to get a less expensive scooter. And one of the challenges in the business conceptually is that in ride share, the cost of a ride and the cost of the labor to provide that ride go in parallel with one another. And the car depreciates over such a long period of time that depreciation is a percentage of the cost of providing the trips pretty low. But in the scooter business, these vehicles last you know, 18 months and so the cost of depreciation is relatively high as a percentage of the 
trip costs. And so the cost of the labor does flex down, like your mechanics and your staff that reposition and deploy. But depreciation remains constant globally. And so I think the way you solve access into um, other countries that are less well-developed is really around, you've got to make a cheaper vehicle um, to make that work. Cool. All right. Hey, Joe, well, I'm aware you need to run. So I just want to say thank you so much. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, you are on Twitter. Uh, is, there, is there anything else in terms of people want to know more about you? Obviously, you've got Lime. Check that out. Um, do you write a blog? Do you have a personal website or anything? Uh, I used to, but I found that like I am an inconsistent writer at best. So count it as no. Okay, excellent. Well, look, uh, we look forward to having you hopefully in uh, Micromobility America in April uh, this year. Um, and I'm going to hold you to that as well and have you back on the podcast in a year so we can run through the things that we were talking about. Um, perfect. Well, hey, look, thank you so much for your time. I really, really, really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you.